This is The Guardian. Today, Xi Jinping has unprecedented power. What does his past tell us about what's in store for the future of China and the world? This week saw the opening of the biggest event in China's political calendar. The 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, a meeting held once every five years that sets the future direction of the country that will soon become the world's largest economy. Emma Graham Harrison, The Guardian's senior international affairs correspondent, has been to past Congresses and knows what she's seeing this time. This is a show. It's a Communist Party show. The party that runs the country is putting on a display for the country. The setting for this drama is the Great Hall of the People, a vast, rather ugly kind of Soviet-inspired building on Tiananmen Square, which is used for all these pieces of political theatre. And the star of this political show, the man at the centre of it, is the party's paramount leader, Xi Jinping. We have united and led the whole party, the whole army, and the people of all nationalities to effectively cope with the severe and complex international situation. Xi is on the brink of something unprecedented for decades, expected to be anointed as China's president for a third term. He'll be the most powerful Chinese leader since Chairman Mao, President Biden just declared that China is America's most consequential geopolitical challenge. This was and of one of the most powerful people in the world, which makes it absolutely urgent to know. Who is he? What's shaped him? And what does it tell us about what he'll do next? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how Xi Jinping amassed so much power and what he plans to do with it. One thing that's striking about Xi Jinping is that for all his incredible power, the fact that he's running what's one day going to be the largest economy in the world, it feels like we don't actually know that much about him personally. Rana Mitter, you're a professor of modern Chinese history and politics at the University of Oxford. What do you know about Xi the man? I think that there are a lot of things that shape Xi Jinping, who has some claims to be, if not the most, at least one of the two or three most powerful people anywhere in the world. And I think as with so many people, whether they're politicians or whether they sit in other walks of life, childhood tells you a tremendous amount about who he is. Hmm. So let me just say you know, two quick things, which I think are contrasting, but bring together, I think, this contradiction that sits within Xi Jinping, the man, as he now is. The first 
is that he was a child of privilege. His father, Xi Jinping, was one of the founding figures of the early People's Republic of China, very close to Mao, and therefore early childhood for Xi Jinping was in pretty pleasant circumstances. He had you know, relatively privileged schools, surroundings, places to live, uh, even vacations, you might say. All those sorts of things were very much uh, what you'd expect from the children of the, the red elite. But then, essentially, in his teenage years came the Cultural Revolution. It was a revolution that would unleash 10 years of violent upheaval across China. Those who heeded Mao Zedong's call for revolution would make up the Red Guards, groups of youths that targeted political enemies. To cement his grip on power, Mao would go on to purge the Communist Party. And Xi Jinping, as the child of a top communist official, found himself very quickly exiled out to the countryside. His father did even worse. He was, he was arrested for a while. But Xi Jinping was sent out to Shanxi province, one of the most remote parts of central China. And while he was there, he had to spend years in exile, during which he found out what rural China was really like, hard scrabble, backbreaking work, but also, one suspects, tried to reconcile the two parts of his existence, the very privileged early years, and then being thrust into the most hard scrabble conditions in his teenage years. And both of those, I think, fight within him even now in terms of making him the policymaker and the politician and uh, the leader that he is today. That's really fascinating that his formative childhood experience was to go from the very heights of Chinese society to doing backbreaking work on a farm, living among peasants, seeing up close the inequalities of China. How do you see that experience reflected in the man who leads China now? I think there are two main areas that come from that childhood, that hard scrabble period during the Cultural Revolution when he was in the countryside out, out in Shanxi province. One of those uh, ideas would be in some way something that Chairman Mao would have approved of. The idea that understanding the countryside, understanding the peasantry and understanding the inequality between rural China and urban China remains at the heart of China's social contract. Now, Xi Jinping clearly didn't come to power until you know, the best part of half a century after his childhood experiences. But I think that that particular conviction remained with him. And it's one of the reasons why, although the methods he uses are authoritarian and extremely hardline and ruthless in many ways, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, later in the, in the conversation, there is one thread about poverty reduction that runs through everything he's done in his entire career. But I think looking at the Cultural Revolution, there is one element where he has turned 180 degrees away from what the founder of communist China, Mao Zedong, would have said. Mao Zedong gloried uh, in disorder. He wanted, he was a sort of anarchist in a sense. He wanted to throw everything up in the air and basically, um, you know, see what would happen. I think the Silicon Valley slogan of uh, move fast and break things, that's something that Mao Zedong absolutely would have agreed with. Her. Xi Jinping does not think that's what the revolution should be. Xi Jinping values order, um, even if that order is um, essentially enforced by the security services, by the crushing of dissidents, whatever it might be. The idea that China, first of all, has to find order and over, only then can it perhaps give some sorts of liberty when it comes to freedom of speech and so forth. That is something that is a reaction in Xi to what he saw as the anarchic disorder of the Cultural Revolution that threw him out of his comfortable home life into the countryside for years on end. 
Runner, she returned to Beijing in 1975, initially to go to university to study chemical engineering. And at this point, rather than turn his back on the party, which is what you might have expected him to do, he does the opposite and he seems to recommit to it. What is it that made him so committed to staying within this structure and working for his future within the Communist Party? Well, you know, lots of his contemporaries didn't. They became that generation who questioned what had happened. And eventually, of course, those dissidents became the backbone of the more liberal movement of the 80s and ultimately the tragedy of Tiananmen Square and the killings then. We all knew it couldn't go on forever, but no one thought it would come to this. A brutal massacre of Chinese students and other protesters by the Chinese army. The death count goes on tonight, and it is at least in the hundreds. China is a nation at war with itself. But that was not the fate of Xi. He took a very different path. I think that for him, one of the reasons probably was the strength of commitment in his family to the revolution. Bear in mind that people like his father and those around him had been veterans of the Long March, the 1930s and 40s, that sort of huge tramp, that trek through thousands of miles of China's interior that eventually brought them to a base area where they had to reconstitute the Chinese revolution on the run in the face of political persecution. And families where that was the background, families which had essentially been socialized into the purest form of red communist identity, you know, born red, as the expression sometimes goes, even the experience of being exiled during the Cultural Revolution perhaps did not erase that commitment. So, Rana, we have this young man who has these really terrible experiences in his childhood. And according to you, I think the things that they impress in him is the importance of poverty in the countryside and the absolute need for order in a country such as China. As he's beginning his rise through the ranks of the Communist Party... What offices does he begin to occupy and how do you see his thinking start to evolve? Xi Jinping's rise to the top was not one of the more flashy or notable uh, ascensions. It was smooth, but it wasn't necessarily very showy. But I think we could home in on one particular period that I think many people would look back on and suggest in his rise to the top was very important. That was his party chairmanship, in other words, the major party level as opposed to just government job, in charge of Zhejiang province in East Central China. Zhejiang is um, one of the more, well, actually one of the most prosperous provinces in China, one of the provinces where uh, Xi Jinping could see the market experiment that was transforming China. So by observing what private entrepreneurship had done, Xi Jinping, you might say, added another string to his bow. We already mentioned that he was someone who from childhood had had his experiences push him very firmly towards the idea of order above all things. Secondly, that there should be greater alleviation of poverty and greater egalitarianism. But the idea that actually this might be pursued through entrepreneurship and market mechanisms was something that perhaps that Zhejiang period was important in terms of crystallizing even more in a way that might not have been the case had he been in charge of one of the more impoverished inland provinces of China, where state subsidy is probably more important than the market. Interesting. And so we see another piece of the she that we know today start to fall into place. Tell me about how he rises through the party right up to the point where he's widely seen as the next president, the successor to Hu Jintao. 
Xi Jinping undertook the progression to the top that has been very typical in many ways of those who have risen to the very top leadership. In other words, taking jobs with more and more responsibility, essentially being picked by uh, the Politburo. So the Politburo, reminder, is is basically the kind of central body um, of several hundred people. Its standing committee of only seven men is the absolute kind of apex, the cabinet, you might say. But it essentially undertakes the major political decisions in China. And in that context, they look for new talent. They look for where people are doing well and essentially see how well they get they 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 do when given bigger jobs. So in undertaking various jobs like the party chairmanship of, of Zhejiang, Xi Jinping was also accelerated through the central uh, bodies of authority, and the Politburo in particular, taking higher and higher roles. And then basically, by the time you get partway through the period of his predecessor as leader, Hu Jintao, who came to office in 2002 and um, uh, stepped down in, in 2012, Xi Jinping had essentially been named as the key successor. Now, what you'd like to know, what I'd like to know, is precisely the processes through which that took place. And the sad fact, exactly. point of view analysts, is we don't know. Chinese communist politics is not transparent. It is not like, you know, American uh, political conventions or indeed, as I speak to you, you know, British uh, democratic processes in which everything is maybe too transparent. The processes through which the leadership is chosen and advanced are almost like a religious practice in the Chinese Communist Party. Sometimes comparing it to the process through which popes are chosen in the Vatican hmm. uh, is, is a similarity. Hmm. So if we don't really know the reaction within the Communist Party at Xi's elevation, what about within the Chinese public? What did people think and what were they expecting Xi's presidency to bring? I think there is one policy in particular that Xi Jinping associated with himself very strongly and which even today, if you ask people kind of vox pop on the street, what they associate with him would come up and that's anti-corruption. By the Hmm. end of Hu Jintao's presidency... It was widely acknowledged, including within the Communist Party itself, you know, there's nothing very dissident about any of this, that China had become much richer, but that it had become much more corrupt, that, you know, cadres in the party, these sort of high-level officials were kind of buying Rolexes and Ferraris and all this sort of thing, and ostentatious consumption made people think that any supposed values of social good that the party was supposed to associate with were, were pretty hypocritical. And from pretty much day one, certainly month one, Xi Jinping, on achieving power, decided to make an anti-corruption drive, his personal uh, trademark. And other leaders had done that before, but unlike them, he went for the big fish, uh, for instance, arresting Zhou Yongkang, the security chief of China, in a really high position, um, and essentially accusing him of corruption. Former security chief Zhou Yongkang has been sentenced to life in prison in a secret trial. Xinhua reports that the Tianjin court sentenced Zhou to life for taking bribes, abusing power and revealing state secrets. And it showed a boldness, which I think is one of the things that, you know, you have to say does characterize Xi Jinping, because many of his predecessors would have thought, well, it's a bit much, you know, taking a Politburo top level colleague who's in charge of the security apparatus and basically arresting him. But Xi Jinping did it. And by doing that sort of thing and going very, very public on what he was doing, he actually managed quite successfully to put in the minds of the wider Chinese public that he was serious about anti-corruption. Okay, so he's packaging himself as a kind of scourge of corruption at a time when the Chinese people are saying they're absolutely sick of how corrupt their system has become. 
Over his two terms as president, Xi's continued to oversee incredible economic growth, a wave of prosperity and military expansion that's made China a huge influence in the world. What kinds of policies would you say define the Xi Jinping era so far? We have to talk about the the feel of China in terms of the ethos and ideology. And China has been a one-party authoritarian state since 1949. But the flavor of that authoritarianism has been either more or less liberal during much of that period. And you could make a case that, perhaps ironically, post Tiananmen Square, one of the most horrific incidents to, to hit China in the, in the modern era, in the early to mid-1990s, up to, let's say, the early 2010s, so that's about, I don't know, 15 years or so, you actually have a period when there's relatively open space in China under Jiang Zemin and then Hu Jintao to actually talk about some real issues, you know, environmental pollution, um, the feminism, uh, the abuse of the poor, the um, the real social evils that do underpin much of life in China. Under Xi Jinping, almost all of that has gone. The aspect of that, that tends to be most noticed because it was very you know, sudden and draconian was the imposition in 2020 of the national security law on Hong Kong, which shut down most of the freewheeling um, openness and debate and dissent about democracy uh, that had operated up to that point. We start with some breaking news from Hong Kong, where a court has found Tong Ying Kit guilty of inciting secession, making him the first person to be convicted under the territory's controversial national security law. So that real crackdown on free thought, another characteristic of his rule. And a third thing you might argue is central to the brand is nationalism. We Chinese are striving to achieve the Chinese dream, which is the great renewal of the Chinese nation. The Chinese dream is about enhancing the strength and the prosperity of the nation and the well-being of the Chinese people. Xi Jinping talks about the great rejuvenation of China. And, you know, that image of basically something that had been old, wizened, withering away and was now going to have a new lease of life pumped into it is very potent. And Rana, as he's been trying to implement that kind of vision in China, he's also been shoring up his own position within the Communist Party. I'm wondering, do we know how he's done that? How did he go from being president to being what we now think of as probably president for life? Essentially, Xi Jinping turned out to be both ruthless and shrewd in terms of concentrating power within the Chinese political system under his own rule. I think there's probably an element of saying that nothing succeeds like success. As it was clearly the case that he was putting power under his own uh, under his own control, I think probably for a lot of the up and coming leadership of China, the people in the Politburo hoping for promotion, realizing that she was pretty much the only game in town, found themselves either forced to step back from public life, or risk the run the risk of being arrested for corruption or, or you know some other charge, or basically going all in with the project. But if they go in all in the project, then of course they are binding themselves even more closely to the idea that Xi Jinping is going to be the fixture in Chinese politics for a long time to come. And so when the crunch moment came back in 2018, when the Chinese constitution was amended to allow uh, no term limits on the presidency of China, the previous limit of two terms adding up to 10 years no longer being um, permitted, that was something that uh, really marked the moment when the old system of the collective leadership, checks and balances, 
was swept out of the way, and instead, something much more personalistic at the top began to take shape. Coming up, the Communist Party's 20th Congress, and the next steps in Xi Jinping's march to dominate China. I'm Grace Dent. And I'm back. Friends, it's time for your fourth helping of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me with more celebrity guests like Don O'Porter, Graham Norton and Mallory Blackman as we throw the fridge doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. You'll notice I'm talking a lot. That's because I'm, I'm hoping somewhere along the way I don't have to eat it. The the level of devilment in your face. Comfort Eating returns on the 18th of October with new episodes released every Tuesday. Comfort Eating with me, Grace Dent, is supported by Ocado. Emma Graham Harrison, you're a Guardian foreign correspondent and you're currently in Taiwan reporting on the 20th Communist Party Congress in Beijing. Can you begin by explaining to us what this event is and why it's so important? So I think that the problem for a lot of people in the West is that we tend to look at these things through our own political lenses. I think you have to understand this is not like the party political conference like you'd have in the US or the UK, you know, the Republican Convention or the Labour Party conference. This is political theatre. The decisions that are nominally being made there, the conclusions that are being reached have all been agreed long, long in advance by a small group of, of China's elite sort of debating behind the scenes. Just because it's political theatre doesn't mean it doesn't matter. The Chinese leadership is a bit of a black box. You know, it's an incredibly opaque system that has only got more opaque under Xi Jinping. And so having someone, you know, in this case, the, the head of the country, the party and the government, sort of laying out his vision for, for the future and his sort of summary of where China is now is still an incredibly important moment. Okay, so tell me about that summary, the speech that she made, and how observers like yourself make sense of it. There's what people used to call sort of a a Kremlinology to trying to decipher these speeches and the, the real sort of meaning behind them. There's a degree of Kremlinology. So for instance, you know, you can read a lot into the fact that when it got to the section on Taiwan, which used relatively aggressive language, although not going far beyond what what she had said before. There was wild applause. The section on the environment, which people outside China have been watching very closely, there was almost no applause. And obviously everyone in the audience is taking their clues from the leadership on, on what they're meant to be focusing on. All right, and so the speech that she made last Sunday, tell me about what he actually said on the issues that people are watching really closely, like Taiwan, Hong Kong, COVID, and so on. Relatively speaking, his message seemed to be one of continuity. There were no huge sort of surprises in what he did or didn't include. You know, he's been belligerent on on sort of Taiwan for a long time. He seemed pretty triumphalist about 
China's moves to bring Hong Kong under Beijing's control, which have sort of effectively ended the the city's sort of state of semi-autonomy and been incredibly destructive to its economy. And he warned Taiwan that the wheels of history were moving towards bringing it back under Beijing's control as well. We will continue to make utmost efforts for peaceful reunification, but never promise to renounce the use of force, and we reserve the option to taking all measures necessary. Complete reunification must be realized, and it can be without a doubt be realized. He doubled down on things that have been long-term priorities is zero COVID, which I think has been questioned by a lot of people. We adhere to the principles of people first to protect people's lives and physical health to the maximum, coordinating epidemic prevention and control, as well as economic and social development to achieve significant positive results. There was a point at which China appeared to be doing very well on its control of COVID under Xi. Now they seem in many ways, very isolated, you know, still largely shut off from the rest of the world at a time when almost every other country is opening up and, and learning to live with COVID. It's also worth bearing in mind that, that you know, Xi Jinping and the Communist Party in general have absolutely no compunction about completely lying in these speeches. He said in his speech to his delegates, we must accept the people's criticism and oversight. You know, Beijing was so locked down that a single protester hung a couple of banners off a single bridge in Beijing the week before the Congress. China responded by trying to sweep the photos of this protest from the internet. People who shared photos of that protest have been handed down lifetime bans on WeChat. I think that gives you an interesting sense of how happy they are to have a a huge and very obvious gulf between how they present themselves and, and, and the reality. And what didn't she talk about in this showpiece speech that he gave? And is any of that meaningful by omission? Obviously, one issue that's of great concern to sort of the rest of the world, but, you know, she has certainly doesn't like to address really in public, is the situation in Xinjiang where, you know, China has this vast apparatus of repression, huge networks of internment camps. We're going to look at China's alleged treatment of Uyghur Muslims and other minorities. In short, China may have carried out crimes against humanity. That's what a report by the United Nations is claiming. It says there are credible allegations of torture and sexual abuse in detention camps. There wasn't any discussion of that. Emma, these summits have been where the transfer of power of the Communist Party is usually announced, where the top party leader, having completed two five-year terms, usually passes the baton on to their chosen successor. But this year, that isn't going to happen. What's going to happen instead? What we're expecting to see is she getting this, you know, another spell at the top of the party. I mean, very important to say, unprecedented since Mao. That's the moment when he's staking out his claim to power, at least for another five years and probably for 10, possibly even for his whole life. And so, Emma, what does the sum total of this Congress so far 
both Xi's speech and all the manoeuvring about who sits where and which official gets what position, what does it all tell us about what Xi has planned for the next five years and beyond? I think worryingly, the sort of message from the speech really that we had on Sunday was more of the same. And I think that means more repression at home, more aggression overseas, and more curtailing of of China's economic growth in the name of party control. And that, you know, is also a tragedy because China's economic miracle of the last sort of 40 years since since the reforms and opening up began in 78 has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And you have, you know, other economic really quite serious challenges on the horizon. You know, China's population is going to start shrinking soon. So they're going to be trying to manage rapidly slowing growth with a rapidly aging population. You know, we've seen in our own countries in Japan what 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 that can look like for economic growth. You know, it's 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 rather a bleak outlook in a lot of ways. I should say all under the control of a single man, you know, wielding more power and by all accounts less open to criticism, to suggestion, to debate, and therefore more likely, I think most people would say, to make bad decisions than the country has been, you know, since the 1970s, really. Emma Graham Harrison, thank you very much. Mike, thank you for having me on to talk about this important time for China and, as you say, for the world. That was The Guardian's Emma Graham Harrison. Thank you so much to her and also to Rana Mitter, a professor of the history and politics of modern China at the University of Oxford. Before we go, one last thing. Comfort Eating with Grace Dent has returned for its fourth season with lots of great guests, including Mallory Blackman, Dorno Porter and Graham Norton. You can find it by searching Comfort Eating wherever you listen to Today in Focus. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Natalie Ktenap, Ivor Manley and Ozzy Majid. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard, and we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.